The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Today is the 22nd day of December 2014, and this is another edition of Questions for Corbett, that monthly podcast series where uh, you ask the questions and I supply some answers, although I believe it's been almost two months since the last edition of this series, so high time for another round of Q&A. And having said that, of course, with two months of questions now backlogged in the uh, in, in my inbox, uh, there's no way we can get through all of them, but let's roll up our sleeves and see how many we can get through this month. Of course, once again, I'd just like to remind you there are many different ways to get your questions in for this series. You can contact me via the contact form at CorbettReport.com, where there is also a SpeakPipe application where you can leave an audio message. You can tweet me at CorbettReport. You can leave a video response at at YouTube or elsewhere, but please do tweet, uh, email me or tweet me the link if and when you do a video response so I can find it and put it in the next uh, edition of this podcast. And of course now, Corbett Report members can log into the website and leave their questions directly on the post for this uh, QFC series. And if you do so, I will put that into the mix for next month's edition of this series. Having said all of that, let's get straight into it. And as I say, let's see how many of these we can get through this month. Let's open up the mailbag and go straight to a question from Roman, who writes... I understand that under the terms of the Creative Commons license that you license your work under, it's okay if I translate the most vital portions of your interviews into Polish and publish it on non-commercial, publicly available websites? Question mark? And the answer is yes, of course. I not only allow that, I encourage it. Please do translate this material, mirror it, post it elsewhere. I do encourage that to try to get this information out to as many different audiences as possible, including non-English speaking ones or ones where English is not your first language. And my uh, my rate and, uh, of, of speaking and my diction and all of that is not really uh, uh, conducive to, to people who do not speak English as their first language. Please, yes, please do uh, translate these works and uh, post them freely to the web. Of course, if you do translate uh, any of my videos and you want to create an SRT subtitle file, if you send it along to me, I'll be happy to post that up to uh, the YouTube version of these videos so that people can uh, can read the subtitles as they go along. Uh, if you have no idea what an SRT file is or how to create one, uh, one of the Corbett Report members, Bart Hooks, has provided a handy-dandy lesson on the comments for Century of Enslavement, my Federal Reserve documentary, where he talks about his process of creating uh, subtitles for the Century of Enslavement, um, Dutch subtitles, which are now posted to that video, by the way, so you can go and uh, actually watch that on YouTube with it, with Dutch subtitles, if you so desire. And uh, he has a guide there for creating your own SRT subtitle file. Um, please, if you do create one, please do send it along. And as I say, I'll post it up with the video. And uh, on that note, another Corporate Report member, F. Garcia Gonzalo, is apparently working on translations, uh, Spanish translations, uh, that are apparently going to be in an SRT file that, of course, again, I will upload to the YouTube version of Century of Enslavement when and if that becomes available. I know I've asked for translation help in the past before, and I got a lot of response to that, but I literally do not have time to coordinate the response to that, so it's going to have to be a lone wolf operation. If you have the time and the ability and the motivation to create subtitles for any of my works, please do so. Don't ask for uh, orders from headquarters. Just go and just do it and post it up anywhere on the web you want. And if you send it along to me again in an SRT format, I can put it up on YouTube easily. Otherwise, uh, it's again going to be more work than I can handle to, uh, to create that SRT file. Okay, once again, thank you, Roman, for that. Thank you for the suggestion. Thank you for the offer. Anyone who uh, does this, I, you have my, my huge thanks for that. It really is a help. Okay, let's uh, move on to some, some more substantive questions. Uh, first, we have Olivier, who writes, uh, Hi, James. I heard you mention that detail about Webb's bullets at 4334 on the latest Beard World Order episode. Can you source your statement that they were to the back of the head? There's still this press release on Rupert's site, Michael Rupert's site, which doesn't mention the back. 
In fact, Rupert himself said that one of the shots hit the jaw, and he seemed to be rather convinced that indeed he shot himself. This relates to a comment that was posted on the last QFC video from a Corbett Report member, Raymer, who writes, uh, In the LA Weekly article on the new Gary Webb movie, they report on Eric Webb's hostility to conspiracy theories and quote his explanation of the two gunshots to the head theory. How, if at all, does this change your opinion on whether he was suicided? And that LA Weekly article is linked there in that comment, and it includes this passage. According to Eric, the two gunshots issue is very explainable because the revolver Webb had fired into his head a 38 Special Police Edition uh, his, his Marine father had owned had double action that doesn't require a shooter to recock or take a second shot. I've shot that gun so I know, said Eric, who said his father taught him to shoot on a camping trip. Once you cock the trigger, it goes bang really easily. You could just keep on squeezing and it would keep on shooting. All right, thank you for the questions, uh, Olivier Raymer. Uh, others who are interested in this topic. Uh, first of all, let me start by saying that uh, my statement uh, in that Beard World Order episode, two shots to the back of the head, was absolutely 100% a misstatement of mine. I 100% retract it. I did not mean that. That was a misstatement. Those gunshot wounds, as far as I know, were not to the back of the head. So thank you for pointing that out. And I, I completely retract anything I might have said erroneously on that point. Um, now, on the issue of whether this uh, this information about Eric Webb, for example, or Michael Rupert changes my opinion of uh, the Gary Webb suicide, I would say not. And I would say that because I have been aware since I started investigating this that the family is very hostile to these ideas, and Michael Rupert viciously attacked anyone who promoted the idea that Gary Webb died of anything other than suicide. So that doesn't really change my view. Um, I... Uh, there are a number of things to say here. First of all, with uh, Michael Rupert, who reported that the uh, there was, uh, he reported that the the death unfolded by a uh, basically Gary Webb blew out his lower jaw. That's the quote from Michael Rupert's reporting, and then the second shot went through the brain, killing him. Uh, and I would say that uh, he he says this was confirmed by uh, by Gary Webb's brother as part of the reporting that those the placement of those gunshots were confirmed. Uh, but it, I don't know. I mean, just from to the untrained eye, the autopsy photos appear to show two exit wounds to the left cheek at about the side of the nasal plane. So uh, that's not anywhere near what I would consider to be the lower jaw. Again, I'll let people look at that and, and decide for themselves. But I think the important point really to note about this is that the forensics of this is not necessarily going to be conclusive either way. Uh, it is theoretically possible we can imagine an all uh, universe with no contradictions in which someone shoots themselves twice in the head to commit suicide it has been documented as happening before so it could theoretically happen i am highly incredulous about that idea but that's an argument from incredulity which in and of itself is logically fallacious so take it for what it's worth um, more to the point there are other facts surrounding this case that could shed light on this for example, uh, apparently Gary Webb did write personal messages to his family members that he mailed to his brother in San Jose the day before uh, he ended up dying. And uh, again, that's not necessarily conclusive in, a, in and of itself. You could make the argument, well, those letters were forged or he uh, wrote them under duress. Again, uh, that's not exactly conclusive, but Occam's Razor would say, well, that sounds like something that someone uh, committing a suicide would do. But interestingly, Michael Rupert also reported specifically that, uh, that uh, quote, there had been no reported death threats against Webb and no physical violence directed against him in the days preceding his death. There had been no reported burglaries of his re residence, and Gary had mentioned no recent difficulties or threats of any kind to his family, end quote. Which may or may not be true regarding his family, but the idea that there had been no reports of suspicious activity with regards to Webb is demonstrably provably wrong, as I did demonstrate back in episode 117 of the podcast, Requiem for the Suicided, Gary Webb, where I played a really interesting audio clip, which I will direct you to that podcast episode to go listen to in its entirety. Of course, I'll include the link in the show notes for this episode. But what a fascinating phone call between Kevin Booth and Freeway Ricky Ross, who at that time was still in jail for his participation in what uh, the, the whole web, the whole web that Webb uncovered. Um, and uh, I'll just play a, a little bit of that for a conversation for you here. This is where Kevin Booth calls Freeway Ricky Ross in, in jail to 
tell him about the news of Gary Webb's death, and they discuss some of the recent activity that Gary Webb had been facing. Um, yeah. And Gary, I mean, he had so much, but you know, he had told me before that people were following him around and tapping his phones and, you know, doing all kind of weird stuff to him. And, and you know, it was a lot of weird stuff he was saying was happening. You know, people on his telephone poles. And well, tell me about that real quick. What what, did, what, tell me what Gary <laughs> said to you. Well, he used to tell me that, that, that he would come home at night and there'd be guys, you know, climbing up the pole and late at night, 12 and 1 o'clock, and, and, you know, at nighttime. And people following him around everywhere he goes. He has, he has cars telling him and his phone was tapped. And, you know, he said a lot of things were going on. They, they had moved him out from, uh, you know, Mercury News had moved him from where he was working in Sacramento right. to yeah. wait some far-out country town and, he was just saying that they they, they were they were kind of like giving him the blues. You know, a lot of things were going on that that that, that he didn't really like. And he said it was the government too. Wow. I mean, but I guess like the question would be though that if if he'd already like done all this all this reporting, you know, what what was the use in, in getting rid of him at this point? You know, unless there was still something that he was still going to do, or or maybe this was like a revenge thing. Well, you know, Gary was never satisfied with 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 with, with the way everything had turned out. You know, and, and from my understanding, he wasn't through working on the case. He was still digging and, and and searching, trying to find the documents that would put everything together. Now I know that for a fact that he 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 had he hadn't stopped working on the case. He was still investigating. So just for the record, yes, there were specific reports of, of suspicious activities that Webb was facing uh, at the time, um, near the time of his death, and there were also apparent motivations for people to actually commit some sort of murder against him in order to silence the work that he was continuing to undergo in the story. So it is far from certain, and I understand that reasonable people can disagree on this issue, and I want to stress that I do not, I certainly, again, I, my, my, my tendency, my inclination is that this suicide was not a suicide, but I'm not going to sit here and tell people 100% they have to agree with me on this, because I think that misses the real point of the Gary Webb story, which is not his death, it is his life, it is his work, it is what he actually accomplished and what happened as a result of that. Which, of course, for people who don't know, please do go back and listen to episode 117. But uh, but it, Gary Webb really revolutionized and, and broke ground in a number of different ways. Of course, he wrote the Dark Alliance series, exposing CIA complicity in drug running in the 1980s. Uh, he, which ultimately ended up launching an investigative, uh, 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 an investigation from the Inspector General that did conclude that the CIA, that did confirm Gary Webb's findings, which is, I mean, just incredible. So we have all of these deliciously ironic clips, like Skull and Bones, uh, John Kerry getting up there and saying, "Yes, uh, people knew in in positions of you know power about this and and covered it up." I mean, just incredible clips like that, which have resulted from that. Um, the San Jose Mercury news and Gary Webb ground broke broke ground in terms of uh, 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 posting this material to the web back in 1996 um, and which was completely unheard of and revolutionary at that time for a major newspaper to be publishing an important news series in that way and that helped to disseminate this information further than it probably would have gotten otherwise um, that was important uh, as we now know the, the he was the uh, the the recipient he was on the receiving end of a concerted smear campaign uh, by the CIA to discredit him and his work, despite the fact that all of his findings were backed up. So um, all of this is is extremely relevant. This is the part of the Gary Webb story that we can all agree on and that we all have to highlight and, and move forward with. So again, I uh, take it for what it's worth. I think it wasn't a suicide, but what, you know, why should you listen to me? Why should you care? The important point is his work and we should that is his legacy that is what we need to continue to promote rather than divisive, divisive issues that people may or may not argue about all right um, but i do appreciate you guys bringing that up and i do appreciate the chance to retract a misstatement of mine all right uh let's move on with uh an uh, a audio message this time coming from shane in australia hi james shane from australia here 
I have a question for Corbett. Given that voting is compulsory for local, state and federal elections in Australia, what advice would you give an Australian who wishes to practice abstentionism? Thank you for the very interesting question, Shane. This is one of those cases where the rubber meets the road in the conflict between philosophical ideals and cold, hard reality. And so, yes, for those of you who don't know, Australia has compulsory voting. Uh, What does that actually consist of? Uh, What does that really mean? It doesn't just mean that you have to uh, uh, register to be on the, the electoral roll. Of course, that is part of it. The other part is that you not only have to physically attend a polling station, but you have to cast a ballot in the ballot box. Now, as has been pointed out in a couple of places around the web, uh, that means that you actually have to deposit the ballot, but it it's a secret ballot. So... So uh, they they can't control what you do with that ballot in terms of leaving it blank or spoiling the ballot in some way. So you can spoil a ballot or leave it blank, and that will be cast uh, counted as an informal vote, which is what they say in Australia. I don't know, in the Canadian context, we call it spoiling the ballot. But anyway, that is one option for people who do not want to participate in the voting system. Uh, that don't want to be fined, or eventually, if you kept going with it, I suppose jailed for the uh, the idea of not uh, casting a ballot. Um, whether that's a satisfying solution or not, I'll let you decide. Uh, there's more to this story. I'll uh, post a link directly to the Australian government that has a, an about section talking about voting and, and the compulsory nature of it. Also, I'll put in a link to the um, uh, ABC, which had a... A, a national news in Australia that had a Q&A with uh, someone answering questions about the compulsory voting system in Australia and basically saying, yes, I mean, they can't control what you do with the ballot, so you can leave it blank or you can spoil it. Um, so that's, I mean, that's the practical suggestion for uh, for people who believe, as many do, that it's a question of the balance. Uh, Do you want to be a martyr and be fined or potentially jailed for your act of standing up against the, uh, the, the ridiculous act of going to the ballot box? Or do you want to participate in whatever way, whether that means a spoiled ballot or whatever, in order to uh, to appease the system while you continue to work on the hearts and minds of others? I mean, it's one of those philosophy versus reality and how do you combine the two kinds of questions and of course i'm not telling anyone how to act out there but um yeah uh, i mean that's that's where it is and i will en- encourage you to go and check out that abc news article or the uh, the the uh, q and a about voting in australia that i will link up in the show notes for this episode if only because it has a fascinating story about the edible ballot society in edmonton in my home and native province of alberta in canada which i didn't even know about but uh a funny story that i'll leave you to go and read for yourselves so there it is uh you can abstain in a way by not casting a vote really but uh if you don't want to be fined or eventually i'm sure go to jail for the act of not paying your fines you will have to register and go to the polling stations. So that's unfortunately uh, the way it is. And this leads into an interesting, maybe not related question, but maybe similar in terms of philosophy versus reality. And this question comes from Silvio. Hi, I was watching America, Freedom to Fascism, and I couldn't figure out if there is actually a law or not for the income tax and what's your take on that all right let me know welcome to tax truth silvio this is the million billion trillion dollar question are you obligated as an american citizen to file income tax returns to pay your income tax well this is a question that has been tackled by a great many number of people over the years and in interesting ways Uh, i first came to this information through joe bannister that i'm sure a lot of people in the audience are familiar with an ex-irs agent who back in the 1997 to 1999 time frame began investigating this uh, theory that he kept hearing people cite as some sort of defense as that uh, the IRS doesn't have the legal authority to actually prosecute people for not filing tax returns. And he started to look into it and he found, you know what? Actually, it's true. The IRS uses color of law to uh, to enact its supposed authority to prosecute people rather than actual legal authority. And when he started to bring this up in his conscientious objections to his supervisors, he was ultimately 
well, out of the, the IRS, of course, and then eventually got his CPA taken away and all of that. So um, he definitely began this uh, journey down the rabbit hole, as a great many other people have. And again, America, Freedom to Fascism talks about this. I believe Joe Bannister was even in that documentary, if I re recall correctly. It's been a number of years now. But so this is, uh, again, information that's been covered by a lot of people. And there is a couple of different threads to this. Uh, one of them, for example, the idea that due to the Fifth Amendment, you can't incriminate, you can't be forced to incriminate yourself. So you can't be forced to file a tax return because that is a form of incrimination, isn't it? So uh, people try to cite the Fifth Amendment event defense. Other people talk about the 16th Amendment because there was a actual constitutional prohibition on direct unapportioned taxes on labor, aka the income tax. And the 16th Amendment was meant to overturn that prohibition. And the argument is that the 16th Amendment was never properly ratified. It was never actually ratified. And there's an interesting argument there that various people have cited over the years and other people have attempted to debunk. So I'll put in links to both of those, um, both people arguing that this law is fraudulent, uh, the law that never was, that Bill Benson argues, and also the other side of the argument, debunking that argument. I'll throw in the link to the IRS as well, so you can read what the IRS has to say about this, talking about their um, frivolous arguments of, uh, against taxation or whatever they, they claim it is. Um, so the, all of that information is out there, and uh, again, you can look into Erwin Schiff, the father of Peter Schiff, who uh, has spent 13 years in jail or whatever it is now and tax evasion. The, this is the interesting part about this. When you when, when you look at a Joe Bannister or Bill Benson or an Erwin Schiff or any of these people who've argued about this, the legality of this income tax, you find they've all faced legal challenges and legal problems. This has been ruled as a fraudulent uh, line of, uh, of reasoning by various courts. Um, there's been personal tax charges, tax evasion charges leveled against various people who have held this position. Uh, there's no court that has ever upheld or supported the idea that the 16th Amendment was was never ratified. I mean, there's all of these different pieces to the puzzle that show that it doesn't, at the end of the day, I mean, it doesn't really matter if it is technically correct or not, because the people who, with the money who uh, employ the people with the guns and uh, who the IRS agents and what have you are the ones who set the rules. And whether or not their rules have any legal authority to them or not is almost, uh, is almost beside the point, because at the end of the day, like in the previous example, when the rubber meets the road, again, you can be the martyr and you can go and try to use one of these defenses that, that people try to use in these cases. Sometimes, hey, it's sometimes it's successful. Sometimes you, uh, you slip through the cracks or sometimes you, you win a court case. But more often than not, if they want to prosecute you, if they want to get you on this, they'll, they'll get you. So, um, so again, it's a question of whether or not you think it is more useful for you to be a martyr to the cause and spend your life in jail protesting these laws? Or is it more useful for you to be outside of jail trying to change the hearts and minds and affect the consciousness revolution that is going to be necessary to deprogram the Agent Smiths of this matrix system? The uh, people who really truly believe, the 99% of the population that truly believe there is a legal authority, whether there is or not, again, it's almost beside the point. That's almost just a technical issue. Uh, of course, that's part of the argument that I think has to be presented, but, uh, but uh, in terms of our own lives and what we all do with this in our various countries around the world, in the tax structures we're all in, it's a question of whether or not you're willing to be that martyr and whether that's, that's the best use of your life. And uh, again, I'm not telling people what to think about that. It's just, uh, I think that's the way it is. The people with, people with the guns and with the money and uh, with the printing presses make the rules, and uh, they don't want people to get away with skirting their rules, whether they have any legal authority to them or not. Uh, let's move on to a different question, this time from a Corbett Report member who left a question on the last Questions for Corbett post. This coming from Chris Weston, who writes, I've heard various seemingly unconnected people on the world stage mention the phrase New World Order, and you often speak of it on your program as though the existence of this thing, whatever it is, is proven. I have people all over the internet refer to it as fact. So what is the NWO? Is it a policy or a group? And what is your proof that it exists and or is working to achieve a goal rather than just greedy people working individually to achieve more money? 
I'm aware of the Georgia Guidestones and various people with huge amounts of money trying to affect world affairs in some sort of global way, but the implication seems to be people are working together to achieve this order. What is the proof that people are working together to achieve some sort of presumably detrimental actions, rather than just a buzz phrase used by politicians and rich people that is meaningless? Thank you very much for the question, Chris Weston. I appreciate it. I appreciate the sentiment behind this question as well, because it's a phenomenon that I've noted as well in my own research over the last several years, that the New World Order catchphrase is becoming more and more of a political buzz phrase, so that every single time it is used is not necessarily uh, relevant in the same to the same degree, at the same level. So, for example, if a Joe Biden says it in a speech or a Saakashvili, uh, I don't put as much emphasis on it as I do when, for example, a Kissinger or uh, a Brzezinski or uh, whoever is is talking about this. So I think that we have to separate out the, the times that it's used and the context it's used. But I don't think it's, uh, it's right to frame the New World Order as a policy, per se, or as a group, per se. I think it is a part of an ideology, an ideology of globalism, globalization, that has been articulated, explicitly articulated in various ways by various different people in, in ways that I think are linked, but not necessarily the same people in the same group. Uh, this, I mean, in its modern political context can be traced back at least to H.G. Wells, who wrote a book called The New World Order, where he outlined his vision of what the New World Order is, basically the technocratic society that he elsewhere referred to as the Brotherhood of Masons or, or the Wings Over the World or various other iterations he's, uh, he put to it. He also wrote a book about the open conspiracy, talking basically about this New World Order, where there was a famous quote about um, many people will die protesting the New World Order, but it's necessary. Something along those lines. I'll include the link to the quote so you can read it in its own words. Um, and that was most notably picked up, of course, in 1991 by the George H.W. Bush speech, where at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, he was outlining the new, the chance for a new world order, uh, which is a rule of nations over over uh, the, the, the international system, uh, the rule of law over the international system. So it's not just the law of the jungle, there will be a rule of law among nations. And I think that's probably the articulation that most of the modern formulations of this idea work under, both from the US and NATO and the Kissingers and those types of people, the Bushes, whoever, and also from the other side, which is the Putins and China and others who explicitly time and again have called for a new world order as being that type of framework of a rule of law in the international system rather than the unipolar American world, which uh, Putin is railing against or whatever. Again, it's whichever formulation you take, it's about this process of globalization and ultimately the formation of global governance, not global government, global governance. And I think there may be something to that di distinction. It may, may not be a distinction without a difference. There may be a difference there. Um, insofar as I think that there is a maybe a cartoonish tendency to see the, the global government can only be this uh, system where there's a president god emperor whatever that dictates to all of the nations individually and that's the structure of global government uh, as i've been attempting to articulate in recent podcasts i think it's more nuanced than that and the system that is being formed right now demonstrably behind the scenes is the system of the world trade organization the international monetary fund the g20 the oecd the bank for international settlements the financial stability board the world customs organization a thousand other institutions that are right now laying the regulatory framework for global tax compliance and global uh, customs enforcement and global uh, uh, trade agreements and treaties and all of these things that are forming a structure that is global governance, but it's not necessarily seen as global governance. The best example of that in recent months is this G20 rubber stamping the Financial Stability Board's white paper on bank bail-ins that basically make the regulatory framework for bank bail-ins possible, i.e. in the next banking crisis, it's not going to be the governments bailing out these banks, it's going to be the depositors who are also going to be on the hook, and you're going to have to give over a portion of your savings to these banks to help bail them in. Um, and that, again, that, that structure is the Financial Stability Board, which no one knows about and works behind the scenes, and no one is ever, it's never reported on, uh, was set up by the G8 originally, I believe, and the G7 maybe back in the time when it was originally set up, and, and uh, reports to the G20. And uh, it works with the Bank for International Settlements and writes these white papers and technical papers and regulatory frameworks that 
are over the head of 99.9% of the public. No one will ever hear about it. No one no understands or knows about it. But they write these very technical white papers. They go to the G20. The G20 rubber stamps them. And then each G20 member nation implements those policies individually through their own national governments. It's an international policy being coordinated at the international level that is then enacted at the national level. That is the type of globalization that we could be facing in this new world order, rule of law, uh, global governance. And that's very difficult to understand and get people's heads around. It's much easier just to paint it as, you know, global government the way people think of it as, you know, one god emperor dictator and everyone... Uh, basically being slaves underneath. It's more nuanced than that, I think, in a lot of ways, and thus more difficult to understand. So you're right, there is the tendency to portray this in a kind of cartoonish way, but I think we have to take it seriously when there are people in, in positions of power with real political, economic, financial power in positions that are able to affect international regulation and regulatory frameworks and the like, who are articulating a vision of what they explicitly call the New World Order. We should listen to those speeches. We should actually listen to what they're saying rather than rather than coming to our own, jumping to our own conclusions about what they're saying or trying to dismiss it. Oh, that's all just conspiracy theorizing. No, these people are saying something. Let's listen to what they're saying. Because otherwise, we are ceding the linguistic battlefield to these people. And we're basically allowing them to to continue doing what they're doing, working behind the scenes. And uh, the idea that this is not being done right now, this international regulatory framework is not being put in explicitly and consciously as part of an attempt to form a greater global governmental system is naive. And we suffer if we, uh, if we don't take it seriously. So I appreciate you allowing me to articulate some of that. If you want some more articulation of that, I did touch on this topic in my recent Q&A with the students at the University of Groningen, so you can consult one of the questions in there that talked about this idea of global government. But perhaps um, my my most uh, uh, formulation that I'm most proud of, uh, well, actually, I also wrote an uh, international forecaster editorial this past weekend Um uh, none of the above, how to avoid the globalist trap. So that also touches on this idea of that, that type of globalization and how we can actually counteract it. Probably the most interesting conversation I've had along these lines was a couple of years ago, I was on the Mind Renewed podcast with Julian Charles, where we talked about this phrase, the New World Order, what types of groups and what types of people are, are behind it, how it's not one necessarily one coordinated agenda, it's an ideology that different people subscribe to for different reasons, and how best to counteract that. A very interesting conversation, I'm quite proud of that one, so I'll put that, of course, in the links uh, in the show notes, so you can go and listen to that, and uh, where I flesh it out in greater detail. But again, it's an important topic, and I'm sure one will return to in the future. Uh, let's move along. Um, we're going to go to another uh, member question uh, on the last QSC post. This one from Richard Fitzwell. Any predictions on what comes of this? Release, delay, or no responsive documents? And he includes a link to a muckrock.com post uh, about a freedom of information request that was filed by John, uh, John Gold, who people might know from the 9-11 Truth Movement. And he made a request to the FBI for any documents uh, uh, pertaining to Gladio B. Of course, I, I'm sure, I hope, all of you know about Gladio B by now, if you're listeners to the Corbett Report. So there was an actual FOIA request put in by Jonathan Gold in October of uh, this year, late October. And in fact, it didn't take long for the response to come back from the FBI that uh, uh, unfortunately there were no responsive documents. That was returned on November 17th. So a couple of weeks later, the FBI said, no, we don't have any files on Gladio B. I don't think that's particularly surprising to me because as far as I know, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll follow up with Sabelle on this so we can get uh, um, this more explicitly, but my understanding is this was an informal uh, way that this was referred to among certain FBI agents or officers. I don't believe that this was part of the you know FBI filing system. I don't think that they recorded these activities as Gladio B, so I don't. Th it doesn't surprise me that there would be no responsive documents on that. It would be, I imagine, more fruitful to ask for very specific pieces of this puzzle that we do know about. For example, if we could FOIA for any State Department records or Pentagon records that specifically pertain to 
the meeting in the 1997-1998 time frame in Baku between uh, Saudi Arabian officials and U.S. military attaches and U.S. State Department officials with Ayman al-Zawahiri that Sibel has talked about, that very important meeting. If we could FOIA for that, that, hey, maybe that's a more specific way of going about it. It doesn't necessarily mean that, again, they'll provide any responsive records, but at any rate, it may provide more, uh, it's at least more of a targeted approach. So if no one files that request, hey, maybe I'll use it. And I didn't even know about this muckrock.com site that apparently helps people to file FOIA requests. So there you go. There's a, another resource for us to use. So thank you for bringing that to our attention, Richard Fitzwell. And just on that FOIA note and the FBI and its lack of responsiveness, surprise, surprise, you might be interested to note that the uh, Jesse Trenadu case against the FBI in trying to get the uh, actual Alfred P. Murrah building videotapes released continues to go on. It continues to drag through the courts. Uh, no surprise, the FBI continues to claim, we can't find this video, which has been reported on. Uh, there were people in, in various news agencies that saw and reported on this video that shows there was a second person in the van with, uh, with Timothy McVeigh. But the FBI can't find those tapes. And uh, the judge has been holding the FBI's feet to the fire and trying to demand a, a response from them. So that continues to go on. Again, that's a years-long battle. So FOIA is not necessarily the answer, but it is at least one tool. And sometimes things of value are released through it. So let's not abandon that tool altogether. Okay, let's move on. Uh, again, we're trying to cover as many things as possible. Another uh, Corbett Report member question. James, have you covered or heard anything about Operation Blue Star? It involves Tesla and DARPA. I must admit, no, I haven't heard about Operation Blue Star. I haven't covered it. Um, you provide a link there uh, in, the, in the, the, the post for the last QFC. So I hope people will go and take a look at that from DailyTwoCents.com. Uh, and that's a good way of doing this as well. It doesn't always have to be asking my opinion on things. You can also leave comments and links and asking people's opinions out there. And hopefully the community can come in and help su supply some of this. Uh, another Corporate Report member question uh, from Truth is Reason. Thoughts on the idea that the fall of communism was not all it seemed. Joel Skousen persuasively argues in the deceptions involved, which helps shapes his opinion about a future war with China and Russia, helping to transition the U.S. into a global government. Uh, thank you for the question. I I don't follow the work of Skousen very in, in very much details, so I can't. I can't answer about his formulation specifically. Again, there are some um, links in the in that question that people can follow to uh, some of Skousen's work on the subject, so they can find that. If the argument is that it's still communism in Russia per se, you know, I wouldn't. I, it would take some persuasion, certainly, to, to get me to believe that. If there are oligarch, if the, the the question is, are there oligarchical interests that are still vying for for control and power in Russia? Of course, there are. Of course. So the idea that the order was fundamentally overturned with the fall of communism, yeah, I, I agree that that's a bit of a pipe dream. Um, how that plays into Russia and China and the transition with the U.S. into global government and coming world war or whatever it may be um, is still a, an important question that obviously we're continuing to work on. And I'm continuing to do the Chinese in investigation, the China and the New World Order side of this. Of course, there is a Russia and the New World Order side of this that is a more complicated story, I think, than the Chinese side. So I'm still working on that and putting the pieces together behind the scenes. I think there are genuinely different power structures vying for control in Russia. Not that either side is necessarily better or something that you want, but I think there is a genuine struggle that goes on there, and and it's more complicated, more messy. So that's uh, that's something that we'll continue to cover here. But yes, I mean, in the long term, in the overall big, 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 big picture, yes, I think these types of conflicts are being used to seed the 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 kernels uh, <laughs> that will become the new world order global governance system that we're talking about. Um, so, again, there needs to be more articulation of that, and we will continue to work on it. Thank you for the comment. Truth is reason. Let's turn to Twitter. I received a tweet from Adam R. Sweet, at Adam R. Sweet, uh, about a uh, tweet that I sent out about Gladio B dr running drugs and money laundering. And for those of you who don't know, the entire Gladio B interview series with Sibel Edmonds has been transcribed by a pseudonymous listener. I certainly hope people will take uh, make use of that. That's in the articles tab of CorbettReport.com right now. 
all of those interviews have been transcribed. So under the, uh, the tweet that I tweeted out about Gladio B running drugs and money laundering, at Adam R. Sweet asks, if the Fed can print money, why does the CIA have to do this? I.e., Why do they have to run drugs and launder money? Uh, it's a good question because I think the image is that the Fed creates money, piles of cash, and hands them out to CIA agents or something. I, I think that's a bit, um, again, cartoonish. Uh, how the Fed actually creates money is a more nuanced thing where they are creating deposits in the Federal Reserve accounts of the various member banks that uh, that are in exchange for treasuries or in quantitative easing for mortgage-backed securities or whatever. Um, and of course, there are other tricks and under-the-cover things that the Fed can do, but uh, generally speaking, the money creation process is more along those lines. So the CIA, uh, again, it's not its not that they're going to the Fed in Washington and smuggling out armfuls of cash. I mean, the CIA still needs untraceable money or money that's not part of the traceable budget, even the classified black budget. I mean, still there are paper trails and oversights and committees and things. It's too sloppy. The CIA needs its slush fund that it can use in any way at any time. And one of the ways that they do that, of course, is drug running and money laundering, exactly as happened in Iran-Contra. That's exactly what Iran-Contra was about, and shipping the, the arms down and shipping the drugs back and selling the drugs and using that to support uh, Contras and Iranians and all of this. I mean, it's just, it, that was a perfect example of that. It's also done in other ways. Uh, one thing that I think that I haven't done enough work on, but I did do an eye-opener report that I'll link in the show notes, is a report on CIA front companies. I think it would stagger the mind if it was ever revealed, which I doubt it ever will be, but if it was ever revealed just how much of the economy are front companies, front banks even, for the CIA. And uh, that some of that has been exposed in bits and pieces over the years, and we've had glimpses under that curtain, but I still think there's a lot more to be exposed there. And uh, again, I did have a uh, eye-opener report on that subject that you can look into for some of the pieces of that puzzle. So, yes, no, I don't think the Fed just creates money and puts it in the CIA's bank account. I mean, I think the CIA does need their slush funds and, and dirty money and uh, all of this, which is uh, one reason why they, they like the cash society, because there's some untraceable uh, money that's available to them in that way. Okay, let's uh, move on to another audio question. Uh, this time, an audio question in from Andrew. Hello, James from Minnesota. My name is Andrew. Uh, I'm hoping to hear your thoughts on some of the interesting revelations that have come out this year from some unlikely people, namely Kissinger saying that Israel is unsustainable and that it will be gone within 10 years, so we need to start focusing on our own international interests. Um, also, uh, Greenspan uh, recently revealing in an interview that he believes that gold is currency and that no other fiat currency, including the dollar, can match it. Uh, he also stated that uh, fiat currencies always revert back to the gold standard, which is just a nice way of what I have been saying, that fiat currency has a 100% without exception devastating fail rate. All of this is not new information to you, I, or anybody within the community. I just, to, for me, these two people to come out and say these things about these two subjects um, I find it interesting. Interesting indeed. Yes, thank you for the question, Andrew. Well, uh, regarding Kissinger, I'm not sure exactly why he would say that, but then again, I'm not exactly sure that he did say that. So if we look specifically at the origins of this quotation uh, from Kissinger about Israel will cease to exist in 10 years, which was apparently made in 2012, so I guess there's only, what, eight years left on that clock now. Um, the origin of that is, as far as I can tell from a World Tribune article that source that, that quotes a New York Post reporter who says that Kissinger told her this, but uh, Kissinger's uh, representatives deny the quote, so... I don't know. I don't know if he even did say this. And interestingly enough, that quote came along just a couple of months after, I believe. There was a report that was floated about this national intelligence estimate from 16 of the U.S.'s intelligence agencies that was talking about the exact same thing, that there will be a post-Israel future because Israel is going to collapse and all of this. Um, 
But again, that report came from this person citing an anonymous CIA source. And, you know, again, it's it's worth the paper it's not written on. I, if you can't see it, if you can't read it, if you can't touch it or taste it, who knows if it's even real. And uh, there doesn't seem to be any corroboration whatsoever for the fact that that report was ever released. So I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of smoke and uh, mirrors going on here. Um I suppose you could make the case, and I suppose it would probably be a mainstream interpretation if they did admit the Kissinger quote or the the existence of that national intelligence estimate, um, that you could make the case that this has to do with this supposed rift between Obama and Bibi that's uh, developed recently and and uh, they're not on good terms and uh, all of that. But I think that's a lot of bunk as well. I mean, even if it was true, even if the Obama administration was really opposed in any way, shape, or form to Israel, it clearly has no political effect whatsoever because the billions in aid continue to flow to Israel and and uh, the administration continues to stand behind Israel during conflicts like what we saw, the war crimes that were perpetrated in Gaza earlier this year. Or uh, politicians continue to have to genuflect towards Israel in order to be elected, like Rand Paul writing his Stand with Israel Act uh, that he was attempting to pass at the height of the war crimes earlier this year. Not only did the apple fall far from that uh, tree when it comes to the Paul family, I think it's not even an apple at all. It's actually a banana or something. But anyway, um, yeah, Rand Paul. Um, so yes, uh, so I. But I would say that if this quote was even real from Kissinger, I think it's probably smoke and mirrors. That's designed to play into that idea. Oh, there's a rift. Oh, we better give more support and more money and more aid to Israel so that they don't fall off the face of the map or whatever. I mean, that that would be my interpretation. If anyone has any other, you know, things to bring to the table with regards to that, I'm I'm all ears. Um, as for the Greenspan quote, and he really did. He went on promoting gold as the only real money and everything, all fiat, collapses back into nothing. That's that's not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising at all, because if people know, Greenspan comes directly from that tradition of gold is money. He was a gold bug. He wrote, he was an Ayn Rand acolyte, and uh, he wrote in 1966, he wrote in Ayn Rand's objectivist newsletter, a, uh, an article called uh, Gold and Economic Freedom, and he wrote in that article, quote, in the absence of the gold standard, there is no way to protect savings from confiscation through inflation. This is the shabby secret of the welfare status tirade against gold. Deficit spending is simply a scheme for the confiscation of wealth. Gold stands in the way of this insidious pro- process. It stands as a protector of property rights. If one grasps this, one has no difficulty in understanding the statist antagonism toward the gold standard, end quote. Which sounds like pretty much uh, most of the libertarian or Austrian economic uh, commentators of today. So Greenspan definitely comes from that tradition, and he's just reiterating things that he wrote about 50 years ago, but now he's saying that after having been the chair of the Federal Reserve for a decade and a half, or whatever it was, a considerable period of time, in which he oversaw the blowing of multiple bubbles bubbles with this fiat money. So when the push came to shove, when rubber met the road, he certainly didn't live up to his ideals or stand by them. The idea that someone who's that much of a gold is money gold bug would even take the position of chairman of the Fed is speaks volumes. But I, I don't know, maybe you could make the case, maybe... Greenspan was kind of a secret infiltrator of the Fed, and he was blowing up these bubbles, trying to crash the system to, you know, get the fiat money out of the way. I guess you could come up with that kind of an interpretation. I only wish something like that were true. I don't tend to believe it. I think he's just a sellout. But uh, but now that it's time for him to set his legacy, I could understand why he'd go out once again promoting the idea that, you know, well, of course the system's going to collapse. Because now he's not in charge of it, and he's not responsible for it. So, anyway... Take it for what it's worth. Take any of these pronouncements of any of these political puppets for what they're worth. There's always seven seven layers of obfuscation behind all of them. All right. Again, thank you for the question, Andrew. Uh, let's move on to Cody, who has this audio question in for, via the SpeakPipe application. Greetings, James. I was wondering if you could comment about FIPA agreements. Three points of context here before my questions. A, they're inherently undemocratic by being signed by executive channels, disregard parliamentary convention, include clauses that give both parties the option of hide arbitration information if it does not serve the public interest to reveal that, and they deem the public at large to be non-disputing members with no influence in arbitration findings anyway. B, they give ad hoc, self-regulated, non-judicial bodies authority over judicial and legislative bodies 
bodies, with articles often stipulating that the arbitrators must be industry insiders. And C, they give asymmetric power to the strongest of the two nations in the agreement anyway, with plenty of evidence suggesting the weaker nation can rarely force the larger party to pay disputes even if they win. My question is, with China signing dozens of these in the last few years, do you believe this is a sign China has accepted and adapting to the existing investment and fiat capital regime? For they have the privilege of printing capital beyond their productive expansion, which they can then export in return for physical assets, much like the U.S. has done for years. Quick follow-up question. Lots have been paying attention to the rise of challenges to the U.S. dollar, from China to Brazil to India and more. No one seems to have noticed Article 12.2 of a recent FIPA agreement between China and Canada, which stipulates they're free to use any convertible currency or SDRs with no mention of U.S. dollars at all. Interesting. Comments? Good job, Cody. Let me just thank you and tip my hat to you for managing to squeeze all of that information and question down into 130. Uh, that was that was pretty remarkable. That's a lot of uh, stuff to deal with. Well, I, I think you laid out an awful lot of it there, and I think there are a lot of different threads that people can follow up from that um, jam-packed question, so I hope that they do so. On the issue of FIPAs, and uh, I did kind of touch on the China-Canada FIPA recently in an international forecaster editorial, Building Blocks of World Government Treaties and Trade Deals, where I talked a little bit about that deal in particular, but mostly about the sort of general idea of treaties and trade deals and how they're used to create this global governance web that we're talking about today. Um, but yes, I mean, the FIPAs are clearly significant, and they clearly do, as you say, they not only chip away at the use of the US dollar as sort of the default for world uh, trade settlement, um, China is has already overtaken the euro, uh, the, the yuan has already overtaken the euro, and is approaching the dollar in terms of uh, trade settlement. Uh, not really that close yet. I think, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but something like 11% of world trade is now settled in yuan and something like 80% in dollars or something along those lines. I mean, it's not even close yet, but it is still, the, that gap is narrowing. Um, now, having said that, trade settlement is, in terms of the overall currency market, is only a tiny bit of the, the overall demand for currency. So again, it's not hugely significant, but it is something. It's a part of a trend, and it does show, as I've talked about many times, the death of a thousand paper cuts, which is what the U.S. dollar is undergoing right now. Having said that, I think the U.S. dollar in the short run over the course of the next year is probably, the U.S. dollar index is probably going to go up. The dollar is strengthening right now. I think that trend is going to continue for the coming year. At a certain point, uh, obviously, we're going to see the destruction of the dollar uh, reserve system and the reserve currency status, but I don't think that's coming yet. Uh, I think there's still a ways to go on that trajectory. Um, but yes, I mean, that also, these FIPAs do tie China into the global financial economic infrastructure that exists in various different ways. And as we talked about, I mean, China is a member of the WTO and G20 and the BIS and all of these other international bodies. And these FIPAs just bind them even closer to these various members around the world that provide perhaps an alter globalization, just a, a different form of it than the uh, NATO IMF World Bank one. Although even in the IMF, the China China is not really, I mean, the new, new development bank that they're starting with the BRICS is seen as some sort of rival, but it's not really a rival. It's it's a tiny in comparison to the IMF and the uh, the money that they have the, at their disposal. And China is still participating in the IMF, still lobbying for the uh, the 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 um, the governmental changes to the IMF that will allow China and other people a, a bigger seat at the table, the IMF table. They're still a huge contributor to the IMF, um, helping out with the IMF's recent fundraising tour where Christine Lagarde went around begging for money from people for for uh, stacking up the uh, the IMS ability to to bail out Europe when and if that collapses, um, and also as Bloomberg has recently reported, I've highlighted a couple of times. I think it's very important. Next year, the IMF will be talking about their uh, re, re looking at the special drawing rights basket and the currently four currencies that make that up: the euro, the the yen, the pound, and the dollar. And they may add the yuan to that basket. So the uh, China is becoming more and more integrated into this system, not less and less. So again, I think that is all part of it. And the FIPAs are one way of seeing that bigger picture that's emerging. So thank you for bringing that to the table. 
Let's move on to something very, very different. I think a very interesting question from Jonathan. He writes, I am a father of a beautiful three-year-old girl, and the whole DVD watching issue looms large. To date, Lucy has watched minimal TV, as we do not have a TV in the house, and we, and we only have a small collection of children's DVDs, including Babe and Monsters, Inc. I'm currently doing a search online for information related to Disney, and I'm finding a lot of info, so much that it is somewhat difficult to know where to begin. I don't really need to be convinced. However, we have decided to avoid Disney, etc. as much as possible and want to be able to support our position with credible sources when answering the inevitable questions from in-laws and other family and friends. Any direction to reliable sources would be much appreciated. Okay, thank you very much for this question, Jonathan. Um, I, I, I think this is very fascinating because, of course, I myself now, a father of an almost two-year-old boy and in a very similar position to you. We physically have a TV that's just a few feet away from me that hasn't been plugged in in over three years. So uh, we don't watch TV. My boy has only ever seen it out and about when we've been at various places, but uh, but he doesn't watch TV. And to any parents of any young children, please do not... Do not park your children in front of the TV. There are, I mean, there's a wealth of scientific evidence that it really does affect children's brains. And I'll throw in a link to one of the most recent studies that was widely cited talking about how television affects neurocognitive development adversely. So uh, again, I mean, there's a wealth of information showing do not show TV to uh, children under five if you can avoid it. So Anyway, having said that, yes, uh, Disney, of course, predictive programming, all of that sort of stuff. I am I'm certainly familiar with this, and again, I don't need to be convinced of it either. I already understand how this, this works, but if there are credible sources out there, I mean, I, I want to call on people out there to help answer this question. If you have a source that you think is, is good in answering this, um, I know I, I have uh, talked to Freeman of Freeman TV in the past, and he's done a lot of work on this angle, but if, if people have other sources or other things they want to bring to the table, that's fine. I also want to follow up by asking another question, a question again for you guys out there. As a father, again, I'm uh, he's only two years old at this point, so he's not exactly watching TV yet, and he, I don't plan on doing that in the near future. But at some point, he's going to want to watch cartoons, and he's going to want to watch movies, and I'm not going to be the father that prohibits it and forbids him from doing that because I know that that will create the Streisand effect in real life. <laughs> if you don't know the Streisand effect, please look it up. But in real life, I think that happens when you forbid and explicitly, no, you can't do that, son. Um, he'll grow up to rebel against that and he will probably, like James Evan Pilato of MediumMonarchy.com was forbidden from listening to a lot of music or watching a lot of movies, so now that's all he wants to do. And I understand that's how it works. I want to have faith in my son the way my parents had faith in me. They let me, if you want to watch TV, go for it, you know? And I grew up to abhor that, that infernal contraption and the programming that it brings. So... Again, I think having faith in my son will be part of it. But having said that, of course I don't want him to watch, you know, the Disney programming or that type of thing. Is there such thing as good, wholesome, interesting family entertainment out there? And if so, what? I mean, I'm open to suggestions. I'd like to hear what other people out there have, uh, have shown their children or what they enjoy. I think it's an interesting question. Because again, I don't think 100% avoidance is practical, realistic, or likely. So uh, at some point in a few years, when he does start wanting to watch cartoons and the like, I wonder what, uh, where we will be and whether there is truly an alternative out there. Which is another huge part of the alternative media. I mean, we obviously talk about news and information in that sense, but the alt media also has to extend to cultural uh cultural media as well music and and which we've talked about on this podcast many times truth music is there truth movies is there truth cartoons i don't know um there has to be another aspect to this so again i leave that out as an open question to you guys please inform me uh let's move on to maurice who writes uh, quite simply do you think that the police and politicians are being trained to fear the public in a way pitting both groups against each other uh, in a word, yes, absolutely. Uh, we have an article that just came out recently. Uh, what was the headline of that? Let me bring that up. Uh, Union, NYPD, now a wartime police department. And this revolves around a New York poli uh, Patrolman's Benevolent Association press release that just came out in the wake of this uh, recent NYPD shooting, the shooting of two officers, uh, which 
basically is talking about the various things that police are now not going to do or are going to do as a result of this, because as they say in this press release, quote, the mayor's hands are literally dripping with our blood because of his words, actions, and policies. And we have, for the first time in a number of years, become a wartime police department. We will act accordingly. Ominous, ominous words. And yes, this is part of a, I think, an obvious psychological campaign to pit police against public and politicians against public and etc, etc. Not all policemen are horrible human beings. Not all politicians are horrible human beings. But um, uh, again, I think that the entire system is being engineered to create these situations where people think that going up and killing police officers is going to be the solution to anything. Of course, it is only going to bring the further militarization of the police, the further hardening of this mind uh, mindset of this battle that's supposedly going on. When the real battle is top-down, the real battle is with the trillionaires and the, the people at the top of this system, but we're being asked to concentrate on the people around us, and it's the wrong way to proceed. So, yes... This, this mindset is being inculcated, and once again, the only solution is the, the, the revolution of the mind. Uh, the battle is for the mind of the, the public, and if we can deprogram some of these Agent Smiths on any side of these debates, they're all, in a way, acting with their too limited framework on either side of this debate. We have to, again, see the, the pyramidal, the hierarchical structure, and we have to keep our, um, our eyes on that, because, again, it's the, uh, the revolution of the mind, the revolution of the consciousness, the understanding that it's not the people at our level that we have to be attacking, it's the people at the top of this system. And more so than attacking, actually withdrawing ourselves from that hierarchical system is the actual solution, which I stress many times and will continue to stress. Okay, let's uh, let's move on. Jake writes, a question has popped into my mind regarding incidents like this. He's writing about the Australian, the recent Australian Sydney siege, the, uh, the terror situation in the cafe. Are there real terror attacks? Very good question. Thank you for asking this question, Jake, because I, I think there is a tendency in the alternative media to paint every single event as it as if it must be part of a conspiracy and must be a hoax automatically. And I, I even agree that we should be skeptical of absolutely every story uh, as, as our default and be convinced of anything uh, that, that, that feeds into this this uh, this propaganda narrative that it's, uh, you know, the, those dastardly Muslim terrorists. But having said that, yes, I think there really are terrorists out there in the traditional sense of the formulation of that word. There really are people who are motivated by religious hatreds and political ideologies to commit real terror events, and they really do happen all over the world every day, and bombings or knifings or hostage takings in cafes or whatever they may manifest as, they're generally very small, limited events with uh, limited ramifications in the long run because they're generally swept under the rug. Uh, which is, of course, let's not let's not forget, that is exactly what you would do if you were a responsible member of the media and government in a real system where there really were terror attacks. You would not report on them. You would not focus on them. You would not give all the energy, time, and attention to them because that's exactly the point of terrorism, isn't it? So if they are stressing these terrorist attacks and events, then clearly they are the terrorists. They are the ones propagating the message. Um, The media, the governments, the people who are supposedly protecting us from this threat. So, yes, real terrorism happens, and generally it's swept under the rug. Generally it's tiny, limited things by bumbling, incompetent boobs who have an IQ of 32 and can barely tie their own shoelaces those people exist. And and even if we look at the larger structure of something like an ISIS or whatever, yes, whatever that organization is at the top and whoever is really controlling it, there really are people at the bottom of that structure who really believe in the, uh, the religious hatreds or whatever that really do commit those atrocities because they are motivated by those ideas. Um, they would be naive to think otherwise. It's more the question, these spectacular big-scale events and big-scale operations and organizations, where do they come from? Who are they puppeteered by? That's the real question. So yes, real terrorists exist, and I think we have to keep that distinction in mind. Okay, I, uh, I think we're out of time, and I think I'm out of energy. So I think, uh, and I think there's about 8,000 links in this uh, episode of the podcast. I hope people understand just how much 
time, research, and links go into each and every one of these podcasts, and I hope they make use of it, please go to the show notes at CorbettReport.com and and research away to your heart's content. These are, again, just the beginnings of a spider web of information that hopefully you can find some interesting uh, details and report back to headquarters, as it were. And uh, we'll leave it there, except why end on such a uh, horrible, dark, ominous note? Why don't we end on something very, very much lighter? our good friend and contributor and co-host of Asia-Pacific Perspective, Brock West, recently asked me a question for James rather than a question for Corbett, which I thought I would uh, I'd relay to you guys. Uh, he asked me, Billy Corgan or Jack White? To which, of course, I would say, well, Jack White makes me move, but Billy Corgan touches my soul. Oh, yes, clearly, Billy. Although I must say, uh, for the first time, their their new album, uh, Billy's new album, is the first album of his entire career I haven't bought and don't plan to buy because I dislike the way he treated Mike and Nicole after the last album, leaving them out to dry. But anyway, of no relevance to anyone and no relevance to anything on the bigger scheme of things. Um, although it actually does bring up the note that Billy was recently on uh, InfoWars with Alex Jones and they had an interesting discussion about character assassination of uh, people that step outside the box, which I thought was an interesting discussion. I'll put the link in the show notes along with the 8 trillion other things that we've talked about today. And that's going to do it for today and almost for this year. Uh, there may be a couple of other things coming out on the Corbett Report website over the next week or two, but Basically, between here and New Year's, it's going to be pretty silent running here at CorbettReport.com. We'll probably have an open thread for members to, to talk during the holidays, etc., but that's pretty much going to be it. So um, so I'm very much looking forward to doing this again with you in the new year. Uh, again, this is supposedly a monthly series, so we'll try to do this every month, and hopefully the backlog of questions won't be so great every single month. But I do appreciate the questions that come in. I appreciate the, uh, the involvement of all of you out there in helping to answer them and ask them, and uh, your involvement is absolutely essential to this process. Thank you all for your support. Once again, I'm James Corbett at CorbettReport.com. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Talk to you soon.